What a delight. <sighs> Opportunity. I'm Dwayne, by the way. I'm just your uh, fellow follower of Jesus. And um, I have the privilege to um, uh, open the word and um, engage it with you. And make sure I find the exactly right chapter here. There we go. There. Well, I'm so delighted to see you. I'm, this is a privilege for me. And um, you know what's really weird? Uh, if I do really bad, um, I just have to let you know, this is the first time in over 30 years of ministry that I did not stress the night before. You know what I did last night? I let my wife whoop me in uh, rummy. <laughs> Operative word, let. Okay, she would And, um, you know, and the Lord knows, I worked really hard on this text, I know, I mean, but eventually I said, Lord, this is between you and me, we've worked at this, we're just going to relax and have a little fun. Does that work for you? Okay, I hope. But to that end, um, I would like to pray, because I want to make sure the the right, correct instructor is among us. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the worship. Thank you for Adam's wonderful gifts that he has entrusted to you and uh, through which he has blessed us richly. We thank you for this last song that's brand new to me, but just what an amazing prayer that Christ might be magnified in us, that the um, altar of our life might be pleasing to you. And Lord, each of us have come here this morning um, worshiping you, needy before you, trusting you with our eternity, but also trusting you with our present. I pray, Holy Spirit, uh, my friend, my God, my uh, passionate, uh, wonderful, eternal, transforming, life-giving friend, that you would be here to energize the words that I speak, that indeed, Christ might be magnified. We pray this in his name. Amen. A recent edition of Atlantic Monthly um, cites a study at Harvard University. And the topic is human happiness. It purports to be um, the most uh, scientifically uh, based um, study ever done. It incorporates new brain scan technology, how we actually understand the way the brain works. It also includes the largest sample size ever, ever examined. Are you interested about human happiness? What is it that makes us happy? Well, the results. Now, the study identifies various kinds of human happiness. But the major conclusion will not shock you. It didn't shock me. If I were to uh, ask you, you'd probably be able to answer it. The major source of human happiness is the quality of one's relationships. Not the quantity, but the quality. That doesn't surprise anybody in this room, does it? It's the quality. But it's also no surprise, then, 
that the strain of those same relationships also causes the greatest amount of human pain, right? And it's also one of the greatest challenges to a person of faith. How do we walk through this life designed for all the goodness and happiness of God, but then faced with the reality of the strain of broken relationships? The Bible has something very specific to teach all of us about this. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 13. I've titled this message, Faith and the Family Feud. And I think you'll get my point as we proceed through it. Um, the first thing I want to do is we're jumping into chapter 13. This is like jumping in halfway or a quarter uh, into a movie. Well, to, in order to understand that movie, you've got to back up. And, and fi in fact, many times if you watch a series, a TV series, they'll go, um, well, previously. Okay, and then they give you a quick rundown. Well, let me give you a previously here uh, from Genesis 1 to 12. Um, Remember, first of all, the audience, and Nathan's done a really wonderful job of reminding you and me, who was the original readers of the book of Genesis? They're a bunch of Israelites. They're camped on the east side of the Jordan River. This is 400 years later, 440 or more later, after the story we're getting ready to read. The Israelites are descendants of Abraham. We're going to introduce and go talk about him more in a moment. But this is 400 years later. They're camped on the east side of the Jordan River. Where are they camped? A country named Moab. Now, we're not going to get into the story here, but that is a nation that was formed from the son of Lot, who's going to be one of our main characters in Genesis 13. And I'm not going to talk about how all that happened. But Moab is where they're camped. And what are they going to be doing? They're going to be crossing the Jordan River, heading to Jericho. And then from Jericho, they're going to go to Ai, to Bethel, and to Shechem. Hmm. We will see each of those cities named in this account very, very importantly. Shechem will be where Joshua, much later, will renew the covenant with the nation of Israel. So here are the Israelites camped on the edge of conquest, on the edge of war. Against who? The Canaanites. Hmm. We will actually see the Canaanites identified in this story. So you see, we're, we're, we're getting a little background here for how this Genesis 13 story is going to be so important. Genesis 1 to 2 introduces the one God, unrivaled, no rival gods, the sole creator. In chapter 2, ah, he's the God of Israel, the covenant God who rescued them from Egypt, the same God who created, who called them to be representatives of him on the earth, his kings, his priests. And if you read Exodus 19, you're going to get a wonderful, wonderful surprise about how that comes back into story. But chapter 3 of Genesis, we all know the story. The human committed high treason. 
This is not just a fruit story. This is a relational break. This is a catastrophic break of relationship. Please remember that. The human defied the living God. The human doubted him, distrusted him, and then dissed him. Disrespected him, actually rejected his rule. In chapter 4, the first family feud, Cain and Abel. And it spreads from there. Sin grows. And then God finally says, it's going so bad that I'm going to commit this radical surgery called the flood to protect it, to save it, to rescue it. And then the story begins to take on a different um, turn. It's now going to focus on a line of people all the way from Seth, if you want to follow the line back a little further, Adam has a son named Seth that's going to end up with Noah eventually. And from Noah, Noah will have three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, why do I pull this back in? Because it's going to be pretty important in our story here. If you remember Genesis 9, uh, remember it says Noah was a man of the vineyard. He could grow grapes, baby. And he did. And in an amazing slap on the rest of the Mesopotamian world that viewed uh, wine as a god, (laughs) Genesis 9 says, no, it ain't. Too much wine can make you stupid. And so here, um, Noah drinks too much. He's laying buck naked in his tent. Sleep. You know, that's what happens when you drink too much. He's snoring, he's asleep. And what happens? His son Ham comes in. Now, a lot of stuff going on here, but um, one of my Hebrew mentors, uh, Alan Ross, wrote an amazing commentary on Genesis. Alan makes the extremely important point. There's nothing nothing sexual activity-wise going on here. That's the expression, uncovered nakedness. That's the standard term, expression, in the entire Old Testament for actually sexual activity. It does not say that. What it says is he looked upon his nakedness. Oh, hey, Dad. Hi. (laughs) Anyway. um, But then he goes out of the tent, and he goes, hey, bros, guess what? It is so shocking. See, it's hard for us to understand the nature of what shame and honor are all about. This is so across the top in terms of dishonoring his own father. What does his brothers do? Shem and Japheth both take the garment, open up the tent, walk backwards, and then cover their dad's nakedness. What did they do? They honored their father. Remember uh, the Decalogue? Honor your father. Guess what? They're doing that. And as soon as Noah wakes up, whoa, what happened? Do you realize that my hand did? What? Blessed be the God of Shem, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Shem. Oh, by the way, and by the way, to bless means may God bring actual real benefits to you. This is measurable. This is like children and cattle and good stuff. May God bless him. And then what does he do? Curse be Canaan. Remember that name? Canaan. Where are they camped? 
on the edge of the Jordan, where are they getting ready to conquer? Canaan. Cursed be Canaan. Ham's son is now cursed. That line is now cursed. Do you understand? Listen to me carefully. A curse is to say, may God withhold and remove all his protection from you, and may instead he become your enemy. Wow. Do you realize that everyone who is not actually right with God through Jesus Christ still bears this? Did you know that? And that's our destiny. But that's ahead of my story. But cursed be Canaan. This, understand this, this is the rationale for the entire Pentateuch. For why Israel gets to go across that Jordan River and take over. Because God is going to bless the line of Shem that's going to then go to Terah, who then go to Abram that we'll see in chapter 12. Are you following me, guys? Is this making sense? I'm giving you a backstory that will only help us understand the Genesis 13 story we're about to engage. Am I making sense here? So blessing upon Shem, blessing upon Shem's descendants that will go to Terah and will go to Abram. Let's get to chapter 12. Oh, by the way, before I do, and feel free to get ready for that. But remember, so what's going on here in Genesis, I told you I couldn't sit too long, but Genesis 1 to 11 is this way. It's, it's, if you had a lens, it's big picture. It's the whole cosmos from the throne of the living God who makes, and then all humanity. And then what happens in chapter 12, gang, my brothers and sisters, is that camera lens goes... Zoom in. We're going to go from all of humanity to one man and his descendants. One. His name is Abram. It will be changed to Abraham, but that's ahead of our story. But this, please get this. If you don't get this, you're not going to understand how the Bible is working. This is going to control the story of the biblical material all the way from Genesis chapter 12, all the way, whoops, through communion, all right, all right. I just stole his line, thanks for saving me, um, all the way to Acts chapter 1 in the New Testament. Do you understand that? This is big picture stuff, right? Um, and in chapter 12, and Nathan introduced this already, remember the Lord comes back and he, now Abram is in Ur, He's up in Iraq, and the Lord appears to him. Now, again, I don't know what all that means. He appears to him in some form, and the New Testament's going to give us a real kind of interesting glimpse. I'm convinced that the pre-Bethlehem Jesus, the eternal Son of God, manifests himself in some form to Abram and says, do I have a plan for you? Something in that encounter was so impactful that it transformed Abram's entire existence. And he said, leave your father and mother. Go. In Hebrew, it's called the lech lecha. Go and go. And he went. He listened to the exact words. Listen to this. He heard, he listened to the words of God. 
And notice how quickly it simply says, and he did. God spoke, Abram went. It was that simple. Wow. But it was in that encounter. It was in this, hello, I want to know you. Do you realize this is actually going back all the way to Genesis 2 stuff, Genesis 3 stuff. Look in your Bible. You, you won't see another encounter, face-to-face -face encounter between chapter 3 and chapter um, 12. The Lord comes back and says, look, I want a relationship with my creation, and I'm going to use you to make that happen. Whoa. And so what does he say? It says he, um, by the way, I'm going to, as he noted, just to re review and remind, three things. What are they? Come on, this is review time. What's the first? Land, thank you. Seed, blessing. You got it. Thank you, thank you. Hey, they're listening to you, Nathan. That's great. That's good. Land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. And I'm going to make your name great. And then he leaves from Cincinnati, Ohio, and walks all the way to Tampa, Florida. Would you do that? I hear one no. Everybody else would have said the same thing. But, uh, get away from the snow? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's funny because uh, my wife just sent uh, my sister-in-law who's down in um, Northport Beach just sent, oh, by the way, see what you're missing? They just moved in September. <laughs> Sorry. All right. See what, all right. That's another story. Um, 900 miles. I got to get moving here. Okay. Um, 900 miles, and they goes. And now um, the one man and his descendants, he's now in Canaan. In um, chapter uh, 12, verses 10 to 20, immediately before Genesis 13, um, which Nathan talked about last week, is a preview of the Exodus. Severe famine. Now remember, the last part of the whole entire book of Genesis, where are the Israelites physically? They're in Egypt. And there, the Lord will tell Jacob, it's okay. Jacob says, no, I'm not going to do this again. Lord, is it okay? Yeah, go. And so the last portion of the book of Exodus is about how in the world the Israelites end up there in the first place and need to be rescued. That's the book of Exodus. But here in Genesis 12, 10 to 20, we've got a preview. Severe famine, he leaves, he makes stupid mistakes that the Lord protects him and says, I'm going to bless you as I promised. And he's going to plague Pharaoh, plague Pharaoh's house. And what happens? Um, Abram leaves loaded, rich, I will bless those who bless you. I must curse those who curse you. The Lord has put that on himself to do. Genesis 13. And here we go. And I'm going to read this text with uh, some commentary, and I'm going to try to make three big points um, with the Lord's timing here. Here we go. Chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, that's important, and Lot with him. First time he's introduced here, because he's going to be important in our story. They will go into the Negev. The Negev is not a city, it's a region, it's a desert. Think of him going out into the desert of Arizona. 
That's going to be important a little bit later on. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and gold. Now, why the silver and gold? Well, that's important because um, he is basically a sheik. He's a wealthy, nomadic sheik. Silver and gold comes in handy because if you want to do commerce, it's nice to have money. And this is going to play in. Remember, a little bit later on, he's going to buy the only piece of property he owns in all of Canaan. He's going to buy a burial cave. With what? This stuff. A little later on, he's going to uh, get a bride for his son, Isaac. He needs a dowry, according to normal custom. What's he do? He sends money. So this is going to be handy later on. He journeyed on from the Negev, by the way, from watering hole to watering hole. Because he's got lots of flocks. And he goes as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Shechem. Northern Israel, northern Canaan, okay, north of, uh, far north of Jerusalem and a little further west. Between Bethel and Ai. Now, I remember, I already mentioned Bethel and Ai are going to be very, very important. Bethel is going to be very linked to Jacob, and Ai will be the very first town that the Israelites after uh, Jericho encounter. So these are very important. And in fact, when they come back, um, when they cross over, their order of battle will be um, Jericho, Ai, Bethel, Shechem. That will be the movement of the armies of Israel. So again, they're sitting here camped here going, oh, okay. They're making the connections, all right? And it says here um, that he, oh, sorry, the place where he had made the altar at first, which is Shechem, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now, I don't want to belabor this, but I want to clarify it. To call upon the name of the Lord is the name of Yahweh, Jehovah in the King James. This is the name of the covenant God of Israel. This is the name of your God and mine. In fact, if you wanted one word, because Trinity is kind of tough. I've had this conversation with God a lot. Okay, I'm talking to the Father, but now I'm talking to the Son, and now Holy Spirit, I'm talking to you too. But I want to talk to you all three at the same time. Okay, and again, I don't want to go into the Trinity discussion, but you know what I say? Lord, that's the best single word. And by the way, cap it, L-O-R-D, all caps. That's the way it's in your translation because that is the covenant name of Yahweh, covenant name of God. Now, call upon him is more than just prayer. It includes that. But Alan Ross, my Hebrew mentor, makes this extreme point. To call upon his name is to karahim. It's to call out the name of Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh, you are majestic in all you do. You are the creator, the sole creator. I worship you. I praise you. Here's my sacrifice. I declare you. Now, where is he declaring them? Shechem. Notice it says near the trees of Morah. Morah is tree of instruction. And most scholars acknowledge that that's probably a a Canaanite um, center of worship where there are a whole lot of other gods floating around in different temples. And you know what Abram's doing? New God in town. He's mine. He's the only, and I'm proclaiming him to you. Pretty cool, eh? First step of taking over the world. Here we go. Well, we have a problem. Introduced in chapter uh, 13, verse 5. And Lot 
who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents. Result, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. The land simply couldn't sustain them. Why? For their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. There is a downside to prosperity. It's tension. And there was strife. The word in Hebrew is reeve, which means strife that later on will become a legal term. But here it's the strife between family members, between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Oh, by the way, at that time, the Canaanites, we've heard about them, right? You remember them? We've talked about them. They're getting ready to take over their land as they hear this. And the Perizzites, it's not parasites, by the way. You notice that? It's Perizzites. That means probably um, uh, urban dwellers, okay? They're probably the village folks, okay, who are dwelling in the land. Too much stuff, too little space. Now remember, this grazing land, they're going from well or watering hole to well to watering hole and looking for grazing land. They have a lot of livestock. But notice, this is like Arizona. As I said before, there is limited water. There's limited resources of land and grazing. Plus, they are foreigners. They are outsiders. And so the tension here, they have to live on the fringes and the outsides, and now the tension has boiled. The tension that is created by relationships. The family feud has begun. Any of you who have uh, been in a part of an estate story know can, how quickly this can uh, get developed, right? I know of families that um, have not spoken in seven years because uh, they haven't come to terms with who gets the, uh, um, the plates. Family strife. I know, I know of churches that have split over the color of the carpet, the color of the walls. We all know it. We have family members who don't speak ever again because... One's a Cowboys fan, and the other was a Washington, um, what's the, what, Commanders? No? Okay. No, fan. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, by the way, I get you. I get you. But we, we know this, right? We all know this stuff. But notice the solution is in chapter uh, 13, verse 8. Abram initiates it. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife. The word in Hebrew is meribah. If you know your, uh, your um, Exodus story, this is a very important term. Exodus 17, 1 to 7. Immediately after the Red Sea event, which is a glorious thing, chapter 16 of Exodus is the manna story. Chapter 17, they're what are they striving and grumbling against Moses about? Water. And God tells him to strike the rock. <laughs> water comes out, but it's called Meribah for everyone to read and be warned about for the rest of the entire biblical material. Hebrews chapter 4 will also warn you about the same point. Meribah, striving over one thing. The offer in verses 9 to 10 is absolutely amazing. Abram offers his rightful land. Do you see this? It's, and he steps up and he goes, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, 
this is interesting because left and right, he's facing um, the sun. So he's facing east. So if you go to the left, north, I'll go to the south. If you go to the south, I'll go to the north. But note the lavish description here. And this text is extremely important. So keep your eyes very carefully appealed to verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes. If you have a Bible and like to write in it, this is a place to underline. And he saw, that's another word to underline, that the Jordan Valley was well watered. Oh, by the way, like the garden of the Lord. What does that refer to? What garden, gang? Eden. Now, if you were an 11-year-old Israelite camped there at Moab with all the other old people getting ready to go across the, uh, the, the Jordan to take, you know what you would be doing right now? You'd be going, hey, 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 I know that one. I know that one. That's Eden. Oh, by the way, I also know that's a warning. Do you realize these words, lifted up eyes, saw, and chose, are the exact three same words in the original language, even the same tense to describe Eve lifting up her eyes, seeing that the tree was beautiful, and then she chose. Three words. And so that little 11-year-old Israelite is going, whoa, this is, this is a warning. Yeah, this is, whoa, he doesn't know what's going on. Well, just in case we missed it and didn't have that little 11-year-old, Moses makes it clear in the next line. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Warning, 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 warning. The music had just changed. Ba-wump, ba-wump, bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum. Okay, the warning is just, it's coming. Verse 11, so the Lord chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. East, east. By the way, you remember Cain? Anyway, they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan that the Lord had promised him, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. But then verse 13 is a preview of chapters 18 and 19. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Notice great sinners against the Lord. All humans are assumed to be um, sinners at some level, but this is an unusual expression. It's underscoring that, you know what, this town Sodom, it's gotten God's attention in a bad way. And we will get pre- uh, we're getting prepared for what's going to happen in 18 and 19. But notice as soon as Lot is out of sight, do you notice what happens here? The Lord promises and renews his promise and even makes it more specific. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, notice the, the parallels here. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Note the parallels. What Lot did on his own initiative for his self-interest, using his eyeballs to control his response, Yahweh steps in and says, using the same words but flopping around and enlarging them, lift up your eyes. Look. From the place where you are. He's on an elevated uh, space. It's a mountainous region. He can see the whole entire region. For all the land you see, I will give to you and your offspring. But notice the next word. Forever. 
we now have a time component added to the promise that we heard in chapter, chapter 12. Forever. It's expanded. It's gotten more specific. But now he says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So if anyone can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Now hold it. Had he said this, no. Now he's going, no, you're not going to be a little bitty Switzerland here. You're going to be China, baby. You're going to be, whoa, I'm going to enlarge you. You're going to be all over the planet. In fact, if you can count the dust, you can count your future descendants. Now dust, by the way, if you remember the story, has a history in this text. What were we made from? Dust. What would uh, the serpent be eating from this from chapter 3 on, that would be dust, because he thought he was going to destroy Dust Boy, but instead, Yahweh says, no, I'm going to use a Dust Boy to do you in. I'm not going to tell you anything else about it, but that's what I'm going to do. Now, and then what happens in chapter 3? He says, all right, you thought you were going to be God. Guess what, Adam? From dust you came, from dust you're going back. But you catch this? There's this wonderful little hint here. The Lord's saying, I'm going to retrieve the dust, baby. That dust is going to become king and prince and priest again. I've got a plan for dust boy. And you and I are a part of it. All right, here are my points. I'm going to try to belabor, actually not belabor, I'm going to try to restrict them to the time I have. Thank you. That was, yeah, let's slip. They think got it. All right. First, is living by faith in the Lord who promises. I'm wording this carefully. It's not faith in the promise. It's faith in the Lord himself who makes the promise. It frees us to become agents of peace. Jesus would make this same point in Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called what? Children of God. They're going to be just like the God who made them. Again, Alan Ross, my mentor, made this comment that somehow coming to know God this way, to trust in the God who promises, to know him well enough, to trust in him, frees our hands, it frees our heart, and actually allows this generosity that's inside of us wanting to burst forth, it allows it to emerge. It allows the generous us to come forth. Wow. Pretty neat idea. A week and a half ago, some of you know that I, I, I sell Hondas for a living. Besides teach grad school classes online for biblical studies. But hey, um, got to make a living, right? Here we are. Um, but it's a competitive business. And I'm a competitive person. Well, sometimes, right? <laughs> well, now, now, all right. Well, um, <laughs> um, that was funny. All right. Anyway, well, we were, I, uh, my colleague and I were heading to the front door, and the only way you get a customer is greet them. Whoever greets them first gets them, all right? And we were both heading to the door about the same time, and I could tell he was increasing his gait. Inside, I was starting to feel it, that little... Hulk part of me starting to emerge inside. I was starting to raise up. Oh. Okay. 
And then all of a sudden, you know what I pictured? This is no lie, guys. Uh, if I'm lying, I'm dying, okay, kind of thing. All right. All of a sudden, I pictured Abraham with Lot doing this. That image, you know what it did in me? <laughs> I smiled. And I went, go ahead. That is because I'm learning to walk moment by moment with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father of Jesus Christ. And we have this wonderful consultation going on all the time. And he brought that image to me, and he blessed my heart with it, my response with it. Now, remember something. Um, Abram is not a pacifist. Please catch this. He is not a wimp. It wasn't, hey, you're bigger than me, Lot. Go ahead and take it. No, 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 no. What happens in chapter 14? And I'm not going to steal Barney's thunder. He just, he just did this. In two weeks, you will be here for that. But in chapter 14, it's General Abram. This same nephew who distanced himself from his uncle, he will go risk his life to go rescue. So understand, the life is not about being a doormat. It's about learning to trust the God, the Lord of the promise so much that we free ourselves and become peacemakers. Does this make sense? Wow, what a way to live. What a joyous way to live. What a, you've just reduced 90% of your stress in life. Does that make sense? I mean, wow. Well, there's another point here. Living by faith in the Lord who instructs us, protects us from the dangers of Sodom. There's an extremely important point here. After Genesis 3, remember what was in the garden in Genesis 2? It was the tree of what? The knowledge of good and evil. This is extremely important because what was the Lord doing? And by the way, that tree's inside you. It's inside of me. I always used to ask, why in the world, Lord, didn't you put it out 18 miles outside in the middle of the desert somewhere? So if I accidentally pass it, oh, there it is. No, he put it right in the middle of the garden so you could not avoid it. Because what it was about was learning, do we trust the Lord to know what is good? Do we trust the Lord to protect us from the evil, from the harm of life? That's the test. Do we trust? Do we revere? Do we honor the Lord himself? And do we entrust us? And what happens after Genesis 3 is an amazing, important point. Human beings are going to have no ability to gain the good or to be protected from the evil apart from the help of the Lord himself. Do you catch this? Um... The word Torah, most of you have heard of it. The verb there is yara, to point out something. Hey, this, or, or this is like this. So it's pointing to something to instruct. But the noun Torah means instruction, not just law. It means instruction. And so the rest of the entire biblical material, especially the Old Testament, will go this. If you want to know what is the good life, and if you want to know what the evil life is to be protected from, let the Lord show you. Listen to him. 
In fact, uh, Nathan quoted this, uh, read a psalm this morning that said the fear, uh, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. So if we want to know how to avoid Sodom, we now have to listen to him. And oh, by the way, you know Sodom's moved closer? It's as close as your TV, as close as your laptop, and as close as your phone. Now I'm going to get real here. Give me a second to get real. Because if there's anybody out there listening to me, I want them to hear this. We have a tendency to live by our senses. Walk by sight, smell, sound. We live by what we sense. That's the perspective of Madonna. I'm a material girl. In a material world. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself, guys. All right. My wife's shaking her head. She's okay. I oh, can't cover that one. All right. We live with our senses. We live what we see, what we smell, what we touch. There was a um, um, a, a, a theme. You've all heard about it. Sodom had this wonderful campaign. It said, "Just say no to Sodom." I'm kidding, guys. It was just just say. No. You gotta come on. You gotta follow me here. I'm, I, you know. I'm not taking us on the road, so I've got to do my best here. Um, just say no to drugs. Remember that campaign? Do you know how successful it was? Billions of dollars spent with no result. Do you know why? And I've learned this recently in the last uh, 10 years and learning about how, God, how our brain works, how God works. It was addressing the part of your brain and mine that it has no care about the actual side of our brain that wants the pleasure, the relief, the comfort, the escape that the drugs or the porn or the behavior or whatever else that you're so driven inside to want. So just saying no to drugs is as useless as a screen door in a submarine. Because it simply does not address the problem. There's a wonderful um, uh, podcast I'm going to introduce you to. Called, um, it's on a TED Talk. It's about nine minutes. It's titled this. Everything you thought you knew about addiction is wrong. Whoa, that's a pretty long title. Pretty brash. But rather than telling you all about the research, you know what the central point was? No, clue, no, no surprise here. It's all about the quality of relationships. What do you know? It's all about the quality of personal relationships that actually determine whether or not a person is vulnerable to addiction. But it's also the path out. And that's another question. I want to talk about two more things quickly. One, it's under this same thing about learning to live by faith in the Lord who instructs us. So that we're freed from the dangers of Sodom. We learn to live the life that he wants us to, the blessing life. How to avoid Sodom and its pits. Make friends with healthy fear, brothers and sisters. Make friends with healthy fear. We already quoted the psalm that says the beginning, uh, fear the Lord is the beginning. Yes, it is. God plants in you and me a healthy fear. You know what? I don't like heights. I don't like, I was up in the Sears Tower in Chicago and you know, you could get up there and look at like, you know where I was? I was like, 
nope, nope, that's close enough. I know there's glass there, but I'm standing right here. There's a healthy fear that that little child has back there inside of them that God has placed in us. There's a healthy fear. Now, little children, unfortunately, can be ignorant. They can run out into the middle of the street to catch a ball or to chase a, a dog, right? They need mom and dad to help them. And that, by the way, that's a relational model, right? I love you so much, little boy and girl, that I don't want you running out there in the, in the street. Well, maybe today. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you... you <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, I just lost Adam. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> but it's the relational model. Honey, I love you. I want you safe. And over time, that little child goes, right? It's the relationship. Am I making sense? Learn to develop healthy fear. It's, it's funny because... Um, it's often in almost every disaster that we end up in destruction, we suppress that. We ignore it. And what's wild is then we become victims of the fear that we should not have. When the Lord says, hey, go ahead and do this. Oh, no, Lord, no, goodness. No. Okay, Lord, I trust you, I'm going to do it. You see? All right. The next point I'm going to make is this. We can learn to look through our eyes, not just with them. We can learn to look through our eyes, not just with them. Do you remember this weird statement in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount? Same context. Jesus says, the light of the body is the eye. Weird. He says, um, well, if your eye is healthy, your whole body is illuminated. But if your eye is unhealthy, guess what? Your whole entire body's in darkness. Now, you can go ahead and research that and all this stuff. But you know what? What's wild is he's talking in the context about greed. What's his point? He says, it's the way you look through your eyes at what you're looking at that determines your reaction and response to it. If you say, hey, i got to have that gold, read Joshua chapter 4. A little warning there. It doesn't work out well for Achan and his family. I see that gold. I want it. I see that. I want it. We can actually learn to see through our eyes, through our ears. But it's, I hear through our ears, I guess. But see through our eyes. I got to keep, keep with the eye image because I got to show you my new gift to me. Okay, this is the very first time I've ever owned prescription sunglasses. Oh, my. And notice, now, I'm not, I know I've just violated my whole, you know, money thing, but Ray-Ban, right here, okay? Well, but my insurance covered that, so that's why I did it, all right? But my wife was with me, so I'm hoping you guys, who? Oh, there you go. Oh, and I can see you. Oh, it's really fun. Now, now catch my point. This is Ray-Ban theology. You're never going to forget this. Right? 
we can actually learn to see through our eyes by connecting what we see to a new heart. This heart that so loves this Yahweh Lord who's revealed himself to us, this one that has so taken and won us that we want to please him, we want to love him, we want to know him, we want to know everything he has, and we want to honor him in every way we can. And so we trust him. And it's like that song that um, Adam taught us early this morning, you know, Christ be magnified in my life. My life is an altar for you. Lord, help me to see everything. Everything now. And by the way, I can see their prescription. I can actually see you. It's pretty cool. Now think about this. Looking at Sodom, all of a sudden I got my sunglasses on. I don't see any glitter. Is that not cool? That was the Holy Spirit who gave me this little illustration. He can have the glasses if he wants, but I'm wearing them. All right, all right, all right. I got to put those there and put these back so I can actually see. All right. Lastly, almost done, is living by faith in the Lord who promises will mean framing our lives with worship and mission. Do you notice how this story began and ended? Abram at an altar, declaring the name. But now he's built an altar at Hebron. That will be where David will be crowned king. Just a little bit outside of a nice, wonderful city called Jerusalem. So here, Abram says, Yahweh, he's my God. There's a new God in town. And I'm convinced the echo would go from there all the way through his descendant David, all the way through his son, descendant called the seed that you and I know as Jesus, the anointed one. Now think about this, and here's where I want to close up. Do you realize how much you and I are like Abraham? Do you realize it? I have not been one of those blessed to see God. I have not been blessed as those who have heard his voice. If you have, may God be praised. I'm one of those countless millions and billions of people who since Jesus of Nazareth stepped on the stage of history, actually believed ah, this one who did miracles, and by the way, no one doubts that, who made claims about his relationship with God that no one can match. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He made claims about himself and us with God that no one's matched. Oh, by the way, you believe in me? I make you right with God. I forgive your sins. He says, that's fine. You trust in me. And oh, by the way, I'm not just another uh, Jew who's going to get crucified by the Romans. Instead, my death will be the payment for your sin. I'm going to make you right with God forever. Oh, by the way, I'm going to die, but then I'm going to raise to show you everything I said is true. You know what I have? I have a book 
It's called the Bible that records the witness of those who knew him and walked with him and lived with him and saw him after he arose. That's what I've got. But you know what? I've got this Holy Spirit of the living God who, and I don't view myself as a a stupid man. Ignorant, yes, I acknowledge that. Stupid, not so much. But I've heard the witness. I've read the material. And the Holy Spirit of the living God has convinced my brain and my mind and my heart that it's true. But you know what? The last thing he said, oh, by the way, I'm going to leave you for a while. And you go and proclaim me to the world, just like Abraham did. Call the Lord. Jesus is Lord. But I'm coming back. I'm going to come back again. And oh, by the way, you'll inherit the earth. So open your hand. Be generous. Don't fight over stuff that doesn't matter. Trust me enough to avoid Sodom worship me. Come to know me. It's all about the relationship. It always has been. We're getting ready to enjoy communion. What a perfect reminder that you and I are just like Abraham, living based on promise. He says, this is my, the bread is my body, given for you. This cup is the blood of the new covenant, It's poured out for you to make you right with God. And by the way, as much as you drink it, eat it and drink it in remembrance of me, how long? Until I, oh yeah, we live on promise. We live based on the confidence we have in the Lord of the promise.